Michigan criminal defense attorney Bill Amadeo is standing by in cell block S. The jail visit starts now on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. All right. I am Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates and the Shiawassee Six. And today we're going to discuss defending the Capitol case. And people have been asking me about this one. We'll first discuss what the Capitol case is and how we break it apart and just the process. And um, there's been a lot of talk lately about political futures and what you want to do. And I will say this. The CPS cases I've done in Lenaway have certainly opened my eyes to a lot of things, and I look at people like Mark Green, I look at people like Scott Corner, and I do think if I ran for prosecutor in a couple years, I think I'd be pretty good at it. But I also know being a good prosecutor means you have to understand the other side of defense. And understanding defense is critical. Let's talk about what a capital case is. A capital case is somebody facing life in prison. And what we've seen in Michigan is this trend of CSC prosecutions. More CSC prosecutions than any state in the country right now. And that's crazy when you think about it. There's more CSCs of late than in New York, than in New Jersey, California, Texas. We're seeing a big influx of the Me Too movement come into Michigan. So let's talk about that first. If somebody was truly raped, and I look at this every day on the CPS cases now, if I believe somebody is truly raped, they should be hung out. You got to go at those people hard. But we got to make sure we get it right. When the term rape comes up, Politics gets involved, right? And when it becomes a political issue, it's easy to lose the truth. Remember one thing, and again, this is the admiration for the Scott Corners and the Mark Reens of the world. The goal of a good prosecutor is not to get a conviction. The goal is to uphold justice. And that's lost too often. The goal of defense counsel is not on the same level in the ethical spectrum. Defense counsel is supposed to provide the best possible defense within the rules of evidence, within the rules of professional responsibility. So right now I have, I think, 85 capital cases, which is probably more than anybody in the state. Most people don't have more than 10 in their career. So when you're talking about a capital, the pressure's on, right? And you got to do it from soup to nuts, from A to Z. How do you defend this case? What goes into the prosecution? Understand the media attention involved in it. What we're going to do today is take it from the onset. And we'll take it by county and see how different counties play with that. Because the way you defend a capital in Wayne is not the way you're going to defend a capital in Washington. And so that's the way you're going to defend the capital in Lenaway or Shiawassee. Every county 
has its own distinct language. We need to understand that. So let's start from the beginning, pre-investigation stages. And quite often what will happen as a defense lawyer is you will pick up a case from somebody else, whether it be a public defender or a previously retained counsel. And then sometimes you gotta clean up somebody else's mess. Every lawyer approaches this differently. So what I'm going to tell you today is my approach. And what my approach is may be different than what other people do. But I want to tell you what I do when I have it from the onset. First thing you got to do is when you know your client's being investigated and have not been charged yet, is you find out who the officer in charge is. Find out who that OIC is. The officer in charge, that is the individual who is basically the lifeblood of the case. They are the ones that are leading the investigation. They're the ones where the reports go through. And the first thing you should do as a good defense lawyer is say, hey, Joe Smith is my client. All communication will now go through me. If you issue a warrant, let me know. And I will bring them in immediately. So you don't have to put the cops at risk. But you got to make communication go through me. Now let me explain that. Because there are some lawyers who advise clients to disregard warrants, which is the craziest thing in the world to me. When there's a warrant issued, we have to consider safety of the community. And this is why the term lawyer and counselor go hand in hand. Think about that. When you're thinking counselors, you're thinking therapists, you're thinking social workers, etc. But the term counselor goes with lawyer. The police have done an investigation. They present the investigation to the prosecutor. The prosecutor approved that investigation. They present it before a magistrate. The magistrate signed off on the warrant. So right now your client is now officially in the system. To protect the cops, to protect the community, and to get your client the best possible bond you tell that officer, I'm going to bring them in. I will argue bond. I will make your job safe. And I will start the process efficiently. Now, some officers will be grateful for that. Some won't care. Some have cowboy syndrome. Cowboy syndrome means this. Sometimes an officer will want to go make the arrest and try to circumvent the lawyer. When they do that, they're usually young rogue officers that do that. You have to use that against the officer. To get a defendant into the court system is supposed to be a team effort. Obviously, we may see the case differently, but to circumvent the warrant is not going to help your client at all. Now, as far as interviews, let's discuss this. This is not a one-size-fits-all proposition in any way whatsoever. Let me explain. A lot of lawyers will tell you in the pre-investigation stage or the pre-tried stage, if you want, never let your client talk to the police. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. This depends on the county, depends on the circumstance. I'm going to tell you, talking to the police is generally not a good thing for a criminal defendant. However, there are times 
when I will bring a defendant into the police station with them. I will have them deny the allegations. I will sit there with them. And if I think they're in trouble, I'll pull them out. Now, you may say to yourself, why? I've heard other lawyers say they'll never do that. In certain counties, going in for a police interview could actually lead to a case not getting issued. In other counties, not going to an interview will automatically lead to an issuance of charges no matter what. And then if I know a case is going to go to trial, I've done this before in one trials with this. I'm going to tell the jury when we get to that point, we're early in the game right now, okay? I have nothing to hide. I brought my client to the police station. I sat there with him. I did that. Would a guilty person do that? It helps. In most capital cases, putting your client on the stand is going to adversely affect their chances of getting a not guilty. And no matter what anybody tells you, let's just cut through it right now, okay? The burden of proof lay with the prosecution. That's what the United States Constitution and the Michigan Constitution tell us. That's a fallacy. When you are charged with a crime, the burden of proof lay with the defense counsel. Nobody objectively looks at the situation and says, oh, that guy must have been set up. We have to put the offense in defense. What I mean by that is very simple. You have to get aggressive. Respectfully be aggressive in this situation. To just sit on your hands and hope that good things will happen for your client is a way to get your client convicted. You have to say to yourself right now, do I want to get a great plea for my client? Do I have to run the gauntlet and go to trial on this? From the outset, you got to have a GPS system in place. In some cases, when the politics come into play, a good plea may not even be a possibility. you got to know that before you take somebody's case, before you take their money and put your name on the dotted line. What is my agenda here? Your agenda should always be to get the best possible outcome for your client. But, as Scott Grable always said, some cases are about guilt and innocence. Some cases are about risk assessment. You have to study, because what you're doing, guys, is you're advocating for somebody's life on a capital case. Sometimes a win is a not guilty at trial. Sometimes a win is a sentence of probation. Sometimes it's Haida. Sometimes it's deferral. Sometimes it's 7411. Sometimes a year in county jail preventing them from prison. Sometimes it's getting that probation violation quashed if they got multiple things going on. Sometimes getting a global across the board when they're stuck in three counties on different charges. You can't approach every case the same way. You gotta analyze that. And when the police do interviews, this is happening a lot close to home, you gotta watch those interviews carefully. There's something called Public Act 212. And I see this violated more than anything. Public Act 212 tells us when there's an interrogation going on, the police have to record such. How often do we see cases 
where the officer says, well, this is what the defendant told me, so I'm going to write it down for you. We're putting the cop on the honor code when somebody's life is on the line. Record the goddamn thing. Record it. Let's watch it. Let's make sure everything went right. Make sure Miranda was properly read. Make sure there was no physical abuse. Make sure KIV was in place. If there was a confession, was it done in a knowingly, intelligently, and voluntary manner? Body cam and dash cam, people lose sight of this, and you have to put this in your discovery request, okay? Body cam, dash cam, interviews. The whole point of recording this was to protect the police. It was to make the system fair. And when an officer goes rogue, when they don't follow what the law says they're supposed to follow, we have to call them on that. If we do not, we're committing malpractice. Now, in that pre-stage interview, here's where things collide. Let's discuss the polygraph. In the state of Michigan, every sheriff's department has a polygraph unit or they defer to the Michigan State Police Department. What does this mean, guys? It means your tax dollars are paying for polygraphs to be done in the state of Michigan. Now, the polygraph can be a very powerful thing. I look at people like Andrew Longusky and I say, okay, this is a guy who's trying to get to the truth. Longusky ran the Michigan State Polygraph Unit for years. And when I look at Longusky, I will send somebody to a private polygraph with them. When we discuss the polygraph, never send your client in for a police polygraph before you've conducted a private polygraph. And this is where social economics come into play. A police polygraph doesn't cost any money because the tax dollars are paying for it. Now, understand something and nancy i know what they do in lenaway and i'm not even going to touch that right now because i would never send a client to another state to do a polygraph that's insane if you do the longusky polygraph in my opinion and i'm friends with longusky i will say that's better than or just as good as any police polygraph he's not just going to pass somebody okay let's understand that but there's a lot of rogue polygraphers there was a case I had in Sandusky where a polygrapher literally wrote out the statement and the idiot signed it. We got to remember something. Again, we're not trying to get a conviction. We're trying to get to the truth. And a good private polygraph is the way to go. Remember this about polygraphs, guys. I don't care what anybody says. Innocent people can fail polygraphs. Guilty people cannot pass a polygraph. And when a prosecutor does not care about a past police polygraph, that's a rogue prosecutor. And I will speak to different prosecutors, and you know who I'm talking about, whether they work for the attorney general's office or they're local. When you don't care about a past police polygraph, you don't care about the truth. And that's messed up. Because I'll tell you this, when somebody makes an admission in the pre-test or the post-test, 
the same prosecutors that will not care about a past test will utilize that confession to try to advance their case. And the dangerous part about a police polygraph is you do not have a right to have a lawyer in there. Think about that for a minute. So I send my guy into the police and for one to four hours, depending on how long that goes, I could sit outside, I could be on my phone, I could tell them they could stop the test, but many people will cave to the pressure. And when people tell the police what they think the police want to hear, people end up in prison for the rest of their life. So you've got to be careful with the polygraph. I've had people pass with Lunguski that I will not send to the Michigan State Police Polygraph Unit because I don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to get tripped up? It depends who the polygrapher is. There are some amazing polygraphers employed by the state of Michigan. And there are some that are the pure scum of the earth. You have to know your playing field. When you go that route of the polygraph, you need to know what county you're in. Because somebody like a Mike Babbage in Washington, and Mike, if you're watching this, I respect you. I know we're not friends. We'll probably never be friends, but I respect the hell out of Mike Babbage. I respect the hell out of Andy Longusky. Um, There's some other people I won't name right now for ethical reasons that I wouldn't trust them walking my dog. You have to know the playing field. Somebody like a Mike Babbage is not going to fake a test. He's going to try and get to the truth. There's some other people that will do nothing more than try to interrogate the individuals already stressed out. We're trying to get to the truth with the polygraph. And when a prosecutor doesn't care about the truth, that's when you start losing your mind on things. That's when it becomes a fight. And you know, criminal law so often is a street fight. And I've gotten better at this. One of the reasons I've excelled at criminal law is because that natural instinct to fight, it's just there. But there's so many things that go into the process that are not needed to be fight issues. I'll tell you right now, Scott Corner, I admire the hell out of Scott Corner. Damn good prosecutor. I think one of the reasons Scott Corner is such a good prosecutor, because he was a damn good defense lawyer, you have to see both sides of the V. But with Corner, there have been times when we want to rip each other's throats out in the heat of the moment. And I could say this, there have been cases when Scott Corner did not give me what I wanted, and there are cases when I've gotten things Scott Corner did not want to give up. At the end of the day, though, there was never the hiding of evidence. There was never a non-review of evidence. There was never dirty pool being played, and that's all you could ask for. Are we going to do it right? And you got to be careful. Again, guys, listen to me carefully. The way you approach a capital case in Detroit is different than the way you do it in Lapeer. You are not a criminal defense lawyer that has a one-size-fits-all. When you take someone's money and you're fighting for their life, you have to know the language. You have to play the game properly and advocate. You know, and what if you find the prosecutor hit evidence, 
Stay tuned on that with a recent case, Keith Holton. There's things you got to do with that. But I'm not going to litigate a case this morning. On the final theme with the polygraph, one thing you could do, and this depends on your level of aggression, offer the alleged victim a polygraph. That depends on what your relationship is with the prosecution. It is illegal to force somebody to take a polygraph in the state of Michigan. But on a CSC case, the defendant has a statutory right to take a polygraph. But when that legislation was put in, in my opinion, it was done more to try to garner confessions than to seek the truth. Because I've had people pass that police test and prosecutors not care. You could still utilize that at sentencing. You could utilize it with Cobbs and Kilbrews. But you got to be careful with that. On a CSC case, when you're studying it, you got to look for motive. You have to study the motive. If somebody is truly a victim, they deserve to have their voice heard. But if somebody's lying about a heinous crime, that's a problem. And when I say offer the victim a polygraph, offer them a private polygraph, when you got something so tangible that you can run with it, you tell the prosecutor, pick any private polygrapher you want and I will pay for it. Gauge the reaction on that. Because we're looking at CSCs, which is the main capital case we're talking about right now. You have to ask yourself, is the complaining witness or the victim, do they have a motive to lie? Motives come in the following flavors. This is not an exhaustive list. Money. Is there a companion civil litigation? That is the top motive. Many people feel a CSC charge will equate to a windfall economically. Number two, was there a breakup? Was there an emotional connection going wrong? And what you need to do when you're defending those CSCs, and this is something people don't do, people will take the evidence on its face. you got to dig deeper than that. Look for text messages between the alleged victim and the defendant. If an alleged victim says the rape happened on May 16th, but they're sending nudes to the defendant on July 5th, you've got to run with that. Cell phone data is the number one way people get convicted and people get exonerated. And you will see rogue officers try to hide that. You have to study the cell phone data. You have to study the DMs on Facebook. You have to study the goddamn Snapchat if they were preserved. The Instagram post. You have to do that. And you cannot count on the prosecutor to give that to you. A dirty prosecutor will try to hide it. A lazy prosecutor will not look for it. That's on us. That's putting the offense in defense. You have to look.
for documentation of the relationship between the complaining witness and the defendant. You have to do that. If you don't do that, you're committing malpractice. Now, when you get in the district court, the arraignment's where it all starts, right? This is where that whole concept of self-surrender comes into play. Far too often, I do not see people do bond motions. A bond motion can really limit your exposure. Because sometimes, if somebody is not going to bond, it's going to be extremely detrimental to their defense. And the magistrate or district court judge has to make a determination at this point. Is this person a flight risk? Are they a danger to the community? Is this a media case? The YouTube era via COVID has changed the concept of arguing bond. Many judges and magistrates are highly concerned about their image on social media. You have to take that into account when you're making this argument. You have to understand the pressure of the individual in the black robe. If you don't respect that, you're going to basically hurt your client. If the magistrate gives too low a bond, they get crap. They give too high of a bond, the defense bar comes after them. You have to argue those bond factors carefully to explain fluently why my client's not a flight risk, why they're not a danger to the community. They have retained counsel. Do they have any prior criminal history? Did they self-surrender today? It's a fluid three-page motion you should do on the capital case from day one. You know, and sometimes you have a rogue district court judge that doesn't care. Well, at that point, you got to appeal that. You can always be heard on bond at any time. Don't forget that. But don't count on your voice being heard. But if you made the effort to do a bond motion and you documented that, it gives you more teeth to appeal to the reviewing court. Lawyers don't do that enough. The bond motion is essential to preserving the freedom of your client while you're advocating for their freedom at the end of the day. Competencies are becoming more and more frequent in Michigan. And I've actually won murder cases on competencies, but the competency standard in Michigan is so low, and it should be filed in district court if you're going to file it at all. The problem with the competency referral is a couple things. Let's break this down. If you file for a competency, depending upon who the prosecutor is, you may extinguish any possibility for a plea deal. But if you don't file and it's required, you commit malpractice. So you really have to study who is your client. Now, I had a capital case dismissed on competency about six months ago. And here's what happened in that case. When I filed the initial competency, he was deemed competent. And I'm visiting this guy in jail. This was an ultra capital case. It was a have four which means there was serious prior criminal history. And I could not get a bond for this guy. I picked up his case from a public defender and understand something with this. This was a case that you wanted to plea out. 
this is one of them. You got marching orders from the family. I don't want this individual going to prison. I want to get a plea. Can you get me a local cap? Local cap means they're doing their time in jail as opposed to prison. That means the sentence will be 12 months or less. This case ended up getting dismissed, but this individual was a flight risk. But follow what happened here. The competency report came back. They say he's competent. You got to study the justification for that. Far too often the forensic center will just rubber stamp things. I think the forensic center does basically a lousy job on their competencies. They just do not put enough effort in to check out the mental health issues of the criminal defendant. That's my opinion. There's certain ones that are better than others, but I've seen people that were urinating on themselves in court and said, they're fine, they're competent. It's such a low threshold. With this individual, though, as I was visiting him in jail, I saw his competency, in my opinion, diminish. I ordered a second competency, which is highly irregular. Second competency said he's not right in the head, and the case got dismissed. You gotta watch it, because the competency referral can be made at any time. It's better to do it early on. But you gotta watch the personality of your client throughout the process. Sometimes the stress of the case itself can end up making them not competent. Sometimes they were not competent, they could be fine tomorrow. It's fluid. If you're not keeping an eye on it, you got a problem there. When you're in district court, you got to be careful with the prelim. Preliminary exam. The standard is probable cause. So what that means in English is following. If somebody says something happened, that's enough to bound it over. Now, you got to know the polls of your district court judge. Sometimes you have to run it to preserve something. And I've had that in a big case lately where they raised the bond on my client. I knew it was going to happen, but I had to preserve and get some counts dismissed. Many district court judges are going to watch their own YouTube videos. And they're going to watch the public perception. And the prelim to a district court judge is as close as they're going to get to actually having a full-blown capital trial. So when you put the judge on the prelim optical, if you would, you have to understand that some judges are going to punish you for that. You have to accept that punishment and discuss it with your client before you run it. I have a rule. This is just me. And I haven't gotten some cases because of this. When there is a child alleged victim, I don't run prelims on that. I just don't. Um, I feel this. Either the child's been a victim or the child's been coached by an angry parent or the child has mental health issues. Either way, I could address those things in circuit court. I don't want to have to cross-examine the child twice. That's my personal opinion. When it's somebody of age, I want to slit them throat. Just want to go at them. There's a difference between the 8-year-old child who says they were molested by their father and the 22-year-old college student who's involved. Well, let me be careful there. 
the 22-year-old who may have a motive. You have to address these people differently. And far too often I see defense lawyers attack children at preliminary exams. You're not doing your client any good there. I've won eight preliminary exams in my career. Eight. And I've had thousands of cases. It just doesn't happen frequently. Now, prelims have set the using pleas and dismissals, but sometimes a prelim's a waste of time. And I'm going to tell you, I've won eight. Most people haven't won any. It's not something you generally win because the burden is so low. And in some counties, like in Wayne County, they'll force you to run the prelim. In places like Shiawassee, they'll appreciate you not running the prelim. You generally get rewarded for waiving the preliminary exam. But both sides have to waive it. And the tone of the prosecutors always will set the tone for how you handle that. If the attorney general comes in, hypothetically, and they say we're running this prelim no matter what, and you realize the judge may raise your client's bond, and you don't have the option to waive, I just say go attack. Pick like three issues that you want to preserve and use that against them at trial. When you have a normal situation, when a prosecutor is overworked, they don't want to prep for a prelim, there'll be appreciation on the waiver. The waiver's got to go both ways, so you got to be careful with prelims. Prelim is so county-specific, it's scary. I had a case recently with a prelim where the alleged victim lied about the date, lied about the time. I showed it was legally impossible they were there. And the judge still bound it over. Now, it's something will probably get dismissed before trial or set up some great appeals or motions for legal impossibility, but understand something. It doesn't matter what happens at the prelim quite often. So you really got to say, am I doing my client a service by trying to preserve testimony? And are there several things I want to capture and lock in? Prelim is like a deposition. Problem is, you could get hurt with bond on that. So really gauge your audience on that one. <clears throat> As we get into circuit court, motion practice becomes critical. And the biggest motion, especially on CSCs, I do not see lawyers doing, is the Stanaway motion. People will tell you that I'm not a great motion writer, and I agree with that, I'm not. The one motion I really hit home with is a standaway motion. For whatever reason, that's the one where it's like, I got this. A standaway motion breaks through the protection of privilege. Somebody's medical records are privileged. Their psychological records are privileged. What we're trying to do with a standaway motion is display that those psychological records should be viewed by the judge in camera to determine if there's a motive for why we're here. A good standaway motion generally goes like this. You have some medical records that are causing you concern, causing you pause, displaying a reason why somebody could be lying about the CSC. And what you want to do is evolve that motion. You want to run with what you have and ask the court to help you find other records 
that would preserve the integrity of the proceedings. Quite often, this motion will be denied. You're running it for two reasons, guys. One, you want to preserve the issue. Part of being a criminal defense lawyer is preserving issues. If you don't run that motion, you don't preserve that issue. Number two, interlocutory appeal. An interlocutory appeal means I'm going up to the reviewing court before we get to trial. I'm trying to say respectfully, the circuit court missed this. And this is so critical. Here's why. Depending upon what panel you get at the Court of Appeals, it might carry some weight. If it doesn't, you still preserve the issue for appeals down the line. Part of our job is not just to win the case or get a great outcome, but is to preserve issues that if things did go wrong, your client might get another bite of the apple. And nothing is more powerful than a standaway motion, in my opinion, on CSC cases. Okay. We're at the close to the 38 minute mark and I haven't shut up. A lot more I could have talked about, but hope you found this helpful. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. You know what? I am so aggravated already at this one. Live audience, where the hell are you? Alright, good. You know, the one sport I hate is golf. I hate it with a passion. I'm going to tell you why. Because it's goddamn summer. Let me tell you what happened, if I may. Junior year of high school. (laughs) I'm on the mock trial team. What's up, Joe Bear? Six in the house. And I got cut from the baseball team. That's a story for another time, but it was bullshit. And that's as I had to choose between baseball and mock trial. And Aunt Mary wanted me to do mock trial. Hey, Gary, what's going on? And I wanted to still play a sport, but mock trial came first. And I joined the Atlantic City High School golf team. You want to talk about bullshit? Let me tell you about the Atlantic City country club which was not atlantic city at all it was in northfield what a group of assholes on the golf team all right these were the guys that took really long showers before they hopped into the van so let's just start with that everybody knew what you guys were doing and from what your facebook posts you're still doing the same shit today all right so first of all let me tell you how this all came about. May I? Sure. Okay. Former client gives me a driver. And he says, I know you'll enjoy it as a sportsman like yourself. And what frustrated me was I told this individual how I hated golf. So in some ways, he's like, ha ha, here's a gift for you. Like, he's sticking up my ass. I, I'm, giving the, I'm giving the driver to a friend. I hate, I hate golf. Yeah. And it comes back to this goddamn summer. So, I sucked at golf, right? But for some reason, I could drive a ball like a son of a bitch. And then, like, be putting, like, all over the place. Like a blind man trying to get in that hole. It was bad. So, this one guy, who's a lawyer in the area, sees me drive one day. 
He goes, what are you doing for summer work? Well, I was going to go work at the Shore Mall or something. He goes, you'll make great tips out here working as a caddy. Now I'm thinking to myself, hey, I'm going to make connections. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I go tell Father Sullivan, my childhood priest. Hey, I work as a caddy at the Atlantic City Country Club. As he's drinking his Johnny Black, he starts laughing like Scott just going down his nose. Why is he laughing? I know what you're thinking, but we won't go there. I'll tell you why he was laughing. He knew what I was walking into. Sullivan was an asshole, but he had insight on certain things. And let me tell you who I was working with. It was all these little Margate assholes with their little polo shirts. And I walk in there. I'm the poor kid in the group. And I am dealing with these losers on the golf course. And let me tell you, when you get these morons on the golf course, you know what I'm talking about when I say morons? No. People who are, like, feigning to have money and they're making bets on the golf course and they're, like, blowing coke in the bathroom and, like, talking about their mistresses, and then the shock comes that the secretary was screwing both the lawyers in the firm, and they find out on the 12th tee. And you don't get tipped because of that. And there was a few times this one asshole lawyer would throw his golf clubs. He'd tell you, go get him. And towards the end of my tenure there, this guy, let's just call him George, he hits a bad shot. He throws his golf club near the water. And I'm pissed. I don't care if I get fired anymore. And this guy stiffed me every time. I always got stuck with his ass. He goes, boy, go get my club. So I took the club and I threw it in the goddamn pond. So I can't find it, George. Ha ha. So this was like on the verge of having a breakdown. And all these assholes that were also caddies were talking about their future. Oh, I'm going to this school, or I'm going to that school, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And eventually, I start hanging with the janitors and the dishwashers. They were cool guys. We were playing poker all the time. That's how I really started learning how to play poker. And I can tell you, one day I'm on the golf course, and there's these four lawyers that are playing. And their careers suck today, by the way. But they were big deals in New Jersey. And these four assholes decided to play 36 rounds in the heat. They went around twice. And you like your water bottle is empty. They are in their cart. You're walking with their goddamn clubs. They're sniffing you. And they're talking about the ales of society. And I said to myself that day... Mm. This is not going to be me. It was horrible. I mean, they literally... Like the asshole society. And this is why I hate golf. When this guy gave me the driver, which I'm giving to a friend, I literally... It brought me back to everything I remember from that summer. And I'm literally thinking of everybody. And the underage girls would come in. They'd be drinking. And these were girls that were in high school with me, but they were dating the adult lawyers, which today would be a CSC3 in Michigan. <laughs> That's okay. It was all good because they had money. They had money, and they had wealth and power, and they got to play their stupid little game and hit that goddamn little white ball and blow their coke 
in the shower and find out they were hooking up with the same woman behind their wives' back and all of society's things. And what they were doing was building a Stepford Wives situation. All the other little asshole caddies, the ones that aren't working there anymore, okay, they became these other lawyers that sucked. And I'm kind of losing my mind. And I'm watching these assholes drunk on the course with their little underage mistresses blowing coke tipping me like shit and the key people that would come to the course the ones my age they would belittle you oh are you playing today are you caddying ha 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 but the ones that were caddies were always in their own little group so it was very segregated based on social economics the wealthy caddies would be with their own friends and family and they were just exploring their wild oats the poorer ones me and this one other kid we would be given like the bottom of the barrel they were up here we were down there and the one poor kid he quit now i'm not a quitter so as miserable as i am at this goddamn golf course i wasn't going to quit right. a couple times they told me oh you're going to quit for the summer now now i'm going to stay here just to piss you off so one of the last days they were told about what they're going to do with the future and there's these three douchebags, right? I mean, when I tell you douchebags, these were like, you could, the stench of Margate was on these little idiots. And I'm talking to one of the dishwashers, talking about sports. And these three morons, they said what they were going to do. And moron one says, well, when I'm done with my education, I'm going to be a major surgeon. The other one goes, well, like my father, I'm going to be an amazing lawyer. The third one says, I'm going to be the biggest real estate agent in South Jersey. And I'm going to marry a pretty girl and move on Bayshore Drive in Margate. So they say, oh, Billy, what are you going to do? And I said to them with a straight face, I'll be more successful than all you guys. And I'm going to screw all the women behind your backs that are cheating on you because they can't stand the sight of you. You hear a pin drop. And that's how I ended my summer as a caddy. <laughs> now, let me tell you about those three guys we're doing today. One became a fireman. And you could visit him at the local rehab center. Another one became a lawyer. And I hope that court appointment work keeps coming in for him. The third one is a real estate agent, and um, he's doing big things. Got caught up in some uh, PPP COVID scams. But I hope they're still enjoying their time at the Atlantic City Country Club. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Tonight, we're going to talk about when my script got rejected. Did you know I wrote a script? No idea. Okay. So we're going to learn some things tonight. Guys, let me tell you. It's been a uh, weird run lately. These next few months are horrible with trial after trial after trial. I am so wiped out. And my sanity is decreasing. Believe that? Live audience has faith in me. Yep. 
So let's go back in time. It was the glorious year of 2011 or 2012, something like that. We lost a viewer. I bored people that much already. Jesus, man. Rough crowd, huh? All right. Well, I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Thank you. So, let me tell you what's going on in my life. I am running a tutoring company in Lansing, Bat Tutoring. What a pain in the ass that was. You had students that were scamming you for money. You were working crazy hours tutoring. I had to do it because my aunt, I was supporting her. And I had this idea. The idea was to bring in a close friend from law school to move in with me. And what we would do is we would start a firm together and we would run the tutoring company together. Let me tell you something. This guy, he was all A's in law school. Norman Fell said he was the next big thing. He's about as productive as Norman Fell today. This guy could not file a complaint or read an outline for tutoring. It was horrible. And, you know, you're in this weird situation. You're not this big-time lawyer yet. You're living in Lansing. You are supporting Aunt Mare. I'm playing a lot of softball at the time. And let me tell you, Lansing softball, that is where white trash lived. You get some drunken guys playing competitive softball in Lansing. And, and they loved me. The lawyer who's not really a lawyer out there playing and competing. Oh, the softball days. I could tell you stories. And... Hey, Joe Abera. Hey, Gary. What's up, guys? I got some people tuning in now. Yeah. And I'm tutoring at Cooley, right? And don't forget, the people at the Cooley Library... Oh, my God. So I would be going into study rooms. I'm an alumni. I paid my alumni fee. And this one woman, Dawn, she would always try to kick me out like it was her mission in life. Now, you understand something. If you are worried about alumni studying in the Cooley Library, and you're working in the Cooley Library, you've taken some wrong turns in life. This was a miserable woman. And I, I hate life at home. I'm coming off this relationship, which was, it sucked. My law school friend is now my roommate and business partner, and he is clueless, and he's sapping all the money out of the account. And I decide I'm going to write a script. Now, let me tell you a few things that happened before that script went down. Can I go there? We talked about this. Is that okay? All right. So my friend, he's black and I'm white. And when he was in the military, I called his father up. And I said to his father, hey, how's my friend doing? Does my friend need anything? Blah, blah, blah. And my friend told his father, he talks about you all the time, says how you were his best friend in law school. And he goes, and us black men need to stick together. I think he left out a part that I was white. Okay. Around the same time, my father contacted me on Facebook. And my father, you know, I gotta tell you, about dad, I don't have the ill will towards my father. He, some people are not meant to be a father. And Mike, my brother, if you're out there, my half-brother, if you're watching, 
I don't mean anything personal by this, but I have no feelings towards my father. The Amadeos had nothing to do with raised me. They didn't. The Neary's raised me. And my father reaches out on Facebook, and he says how he follows some things on Google. Well, Dad, if you're Googling me today, it's a lot more material than it was back then. But we're kind of having like this call of conscience about our fathers, because my friend in law school, he didn't get along with his father. And I had no relationship with my father, and now these two men are kind of coming back into our lives. I don't really have an interest. My friend who was useless did have this interest. And it was odd. You know, it was just weird. And I just remember his father thinking that I am black. My father trying to connect with me over weird things that I had no interest in. And I go home to Jersey. And I go see my aunt. And it's on term break from Cooley. And I go visit Aunt Mare. And I'm... I come back and I fly back and now at this point my little school roommate and this other guy who was tutoring with us they're all three of us are living in this two-bedroom apartment at Village Green and I come into the house one day and those of you that know me I'm very clean about my body but I'm very sloppy about everything else disorganized and there's like dishes up to the ceiling the trash hadn't been taken out in the weeks I've been gone it was disgusting, and I start cleaning up, right? And I'm cleaning this place up, and I'm doing this whole thing, and my roommate comes out, and he says to me, oh, what are you doing? And I said, I'm cleaning up the goddamn apartment, because you and that idiot over there, not only don't you pay rent, you're letting this apartment go to shit. And I said, here's the catch, wake the fuck up. And then it hit me. Here's the catch. See, I was being ironic. Mm -hmm. And then when I said, here's the catch, I had like this moment, this like spark of energy. And I decided I'm going to write a script called Here's the Catch. And you got to remember where I'm at this time. Because back then, right, I'm not successful and weird. Right. Today, you're successful and weird, so that makes you unique. Right? Yep. I mean, that's reality. I kind of am the same person I was in 2011, but now that I won some jury trials, got some dismissals, it's cool. Back then, it was just odd. Yeah. So I sat down on my computer, and there were no chairs in the apartment, so I'm sitting down on the floor, typing up this script with my headphones on, and it was called Here's the Catch. And I placed it in 1978. And the whole point of Here's the Catch is that the script would be about one thing, but it would flip into something else. Here's the catch. Get it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They didn't buy it either. No, I get it. You're not really impressed. No, I, 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 I yeah. Keep going. So, now, for those of you that follow me, understand something now. And you know what? Mike Picotney says it. Jerry and George wrote a script about nothing. And you see what we got from them. This was a script about irony, Mike. Now, people are learning some things right now. No Good Deed Goes Unpunished was the name of my band that failed. Mm -hmm. Here's the catch of the name of a script that failed. Uh, my baseball career sucked. I didn't make it as a boxer. But here's the script. And my script is going to put me over the top. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. So I start writing these mini episodes. 
two of the episodes were about our fathers. And my roommate was supposed to contribute to the script. And let me tell you, he was worse at that than he was as a lawyer. He sucked as a lawyer. He couldn't tutor. He just spent money. Spent my money. He sucked as a lawyer, he sucked as a tutor, and his script made no sense to me. And then you start writing scripts to piss him off. So here's what was happening. Okay. Josh, your script was better than mine. I get annoyed at my roommate because he's sucking my money away. He's not contributing to the business. And at the end of the night, I have to work like 14 hours. I would start writing a script and it would be like passive aggressive. Let me give you a hint. Bill worked all day as a tutor, but now he's upset. Is it because his roommate isn't contributing money? Here's the catch. It's because his roommate never takes a goddamn shower and smells like shit. These are the things. I say, hey, what do you think of this script? You know, and I'm losing my mind a little bit. I mean, come on, dude. Take a shower. You weren't working. You weren't contributing. You smelled like shit. Your father thinks I'm black and I'm white. I channeled that. So I made this script about his father and our experience. Now, during this time period, his father was going through an eye surgery. This is where things get dangerous, mm -hmm. right? So his father's going through an eye surgery. And I was talking to him on the phone. And the name of the script was, Oh my God, you're white. <laughs> so here's, here's what happened. I pretend his father is living with us. And I'm driving in all those appointments and stuff like that. I mean, his father are talking sports all the time. We commit this bond. But then he takes, his eyes come back. He goes, oh my God, you're white. Here's the catch. Because he didn't like white people, right? So now I use the real life experience into the script. And, and Hollywood didn't like it. I took one more shot at things. So... My father, my father, people are, are they convinced I'm not to this point? No. No? Okay, good. good. Thank you, I've already ready now. My father starts reaching out to me, and he says how he's on the back nine. And I guess that means he could die at any time, right? Okay. And it was the same week that Friday Night Lights was going to get canceled. Now, nothing against Dad, but I love Friday Night Lights. So I this script. Bill finds out his father could be passing away. He seems really distraught. But here's the catch. His favorite TV show may get canceled. Is Bill really upset about his father or the TV show? And I'm pitching this, right? And I'm telling these people. And here's the thing. I'm laughing because the TV show I love might get canceled. And you get, it's like this room, right? You're in like this room pitching your treatment. And um, they have like a box of raisins there. And Mike, you can relate to this. Remember when the Jerry show was being pitched and the guy who played Kramer was going to steal the raisins? I knew that they weren't going to take my script. And I thought to myself, you know what? I want to take those raisins. 
I don't want to get a Lars Sneer character fitness issue. So as I'm leaving, knowing my script's not going to get rejected, I tell them, hey, can I just take those raisins? And um, they looked at me like I was crazy. They said, you rolled away. I said, I love the raisins. Let's go ahead and take the raisins. And I tried to explain them on the way out. Kramer, the fake Kramer did this at the Seinfeld episode. Anyway, Here's the Catch was the name of the show. No Good Deed Goes Unpunished was the name of the band. And I'm Bill That's it for tonight. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.